The internet is crammed full of information, some of which is educational, some of which is entertaining, and some of which is unexplainable, according to those who write it. Shipped High in Transit is a podcast that aims to investigate unexplained phenomena and present the evidence and facts with the objective of proving or disproving those urban legends from around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Shipped High in Transit, the podcast where we debunk popularly held beliefs and stories. The show is based on a conversation we had a while back where our friend Ira said that the word shit was an acronym for shipped high in transit because the methane released from wet manure being transported by ship caused explosions and to stop this, S-H-I-T was printed on the sides of the containers so they stayed dry. This turned out to be untrue and so the idea was born to have a show devoted to this subject. Each episode will usually encompass two hosts who will bring a story each which has either been debunked or is unexplained. These are split by listener interactions and quick shits, which are bite-sized debunkings, which can be expanded upon in later episodes if they prove to be interesting enough or are voted for by you, the listener. Hello and welcome back to Ship Tie and Transit. My name is Tom and uh, it's been 10 months since the last one and once again I am joined by Stephen. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for coming back and I'm not even going to say that you're from another podcast because uh, frankly you're you're a member of this podcasting team now. Well, thank you very much, I'm very happy to be so. But of course you do have another podcast, it's Cinematic Sevens, so if people wanted to find that, where would they find it? Uh, well, it's currently on iTunes and, and Stitcher and to be found via Twitter under the moniker History of Misunderstanding, which was the uh, the sort of original title of the podcast that it spun off from. It's not a, a podcast that is um, out very frequently, mm. although that's hoping to change. But there has been a recent episode out for people to catch up on. So if they uh, search the History of Misunderstanding, they should be able to find Cinematic Sevens as well. And uh, the most recent episode was with Booze from the Sweet Feathery Jesus podcast. So that's uh, that's another unique selling point as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of um, put my uh, podcast host into shame and uh, made me realise that somebody who isn't a film podcaster actually knew a bit more about films than I did, which is a bit in- embarrassing, really. But um, it was great to have him on because he's a, a great guy and a fantastic character as well as um, a podcast host, so... It did tend to go on for longer than I would normally um, do the podcast for, just because he was so entertaining to have on. Indeed, and it was a brilliant show. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you very much. Uh, What have you got in store for us later on? My topic later on will be the disappearance of Ashley. So that will be for me to explain to you exactly who or what Ashley is and how they came to disappear. I see. Well, I'll look forward to that. But as you went first last time, I think it's only fair for me to go first this time. I agree. And uh, it's something that I've wanted to talk about on this show for probably a year and a bit now. It was just after the terror attacks in Paris of 2015, where ISIS took responsibility for setting off bombs in the Bataclan nightclub and outside the uh, Stade de France. Yes. And I noticed on social media, Facebook in particular, there were posts being shared about a single man. He was almost single-handedly fighting back against the forces of ISIS in Iraq. And this came at a time when people in the West, especially in France, but also in Britain and America, were feeling a little bit hopeless and powerless to kind of stop these attacks. And I think positivity was needed and this this post about this man hunting ISIS down really kind of took hold. Uh, the potential vigilante to redress the bones. Precisely that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you don't have Facebook, so I don't know whether you saw this at all. I was aware of the, the story being out there, but not mm. the details of, mm. in any respect. Um, and to be honest, I had forgotten about it until uh, until you mentioned it. So, yeah. But yes, I'm, I'm not on Facebook, so um, this will be learning for me. Indeed. Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read verbatim from the Facebook post that went round on a... I think the original post was posted on the 17th of November 2015, uh, which is very, very soon after the attacks. 
and it says, while everyone seems to think that bombing is the only way to solve any problems, let me tell you about this guy, Abu Azrael, a.k.a. the Angel of Death. ISIS dreads seeing this guy come to the scene. He has over 1,500 confirmed kills in a little over a year against ISIS, and he does most of them with that sword in his hand. I didn't even know that men like this were still being produced. He also uses a modified axe. He is a Christian from Iraq who strikes fear into the terror group. He has more kills than any bomb dropped. He uses very old school fighting tactic, much like Spartacus's guerrilla style of fighting. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing that's really shutting them down is him, and from what I've read, Isis won't even allow you to say his name. That is a very ancient type of fear. That blurb went round with a couple of pictures of Abu Azrael, and he's uh, he's quite a large guy. I don't know whether you've done any image searches on him or anything. No, no, I deliberately tried to not bring any more awareness of uh, of the topic, so I could actually, you know, not have anything preconceived before uh, listening to to what you were telling me. Mm. So you could be my my first source of information. Absolutely. There were two pictures that went with this post, and one is of him in kind of well, they're both of him in full combat gear. He's a large man. You can tell that he's kind of uh, on the verge of kind of bodybuilder size, massive guy. In one of the pictures, he's kind of casually walking down a street of some sort with a curved sword in his hand. He's he's bald and he's got quite a large beard. In the second image, he's uh, in some sort of place of worship, holding what looks like a holy book in his hand while still in the military uniform. The the book in his hand, you can't see the title of, whether it's the Bible or whether it's the Quran or, or what. But in the background, there's a wall hanging that says Prince of Peace, and there's a cross on that, which kind of lends credence, I guess, to the Christianity thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so the, the statement is that he's a, he's a Christian, he's from Iraq, he's killed 1,500 ISIS members in the last year and that's between 2014 and 2015. Abu Azrael translated as the father of the archangel of death. It's quite a quite an evocative kind of name I guess if you like. Evocative might not be the right word but. Oh absolutely. (laughs) But it's it's designed there to to inspire a a certain amount of respect from the, the side that it's actually meant to be championing and also inspire fear from the people he's becoming the enemy of. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was one of the things that I thought when I when I first started seeing this post doing the rounds, I thought to myself, well, how is, is this one guy doing this? Is he actually a fictitious character? Because as with so much, the whole war on terror has been a war of propaganda on both sides or all sides. How much can you kind of lend credence to this uh, to this story of this kind of Rambo-esque Iraqi going around kind of terrorising an international terror group? It seems like the, the plot of a film, almost. Yes, absolutely. Chuck Norris or somebody. Yeah, and uh, it seems unbelievable that one man would strike this level of fear into an international terrorist organisation, let alone he managed to rack up around 1,500 kills in over a year. But as I say, the bombings in Paris, 130 people were killed there. Seemingly at random, it left people feeling powerless against ISIS, really. So the story of Abu Azrael cutting swathes through the terrorist organisation provided some sort of comfort and made people feel less afraid, like someone was sticking up for them. But yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about Abu Azrael and where he came from, who he really is. So I did a little bit of research. Now, it's claimed that Abu Azrael, whose real name is uh, Ayub Faleh Hassan al-Rubay, is around 40 years old. He may have five children, and he was either a university lecturer or PE teacher with a master's in PE that took up the call to arms after his students were massacred by ISIS It's also reported that he could have been Iraq's Taekwondo champion. No one truly knows, as versions of his backstory tend to conflict depending on what article you're reading. He served with the Iraqis against the US and its allies in the invasion of Iraq in 2005, but once the US and the Allied forces left Iraq, 
and ISIS began its campaign to take control of certain parts of the company, he began fighting against ISIS. And concurrently, Western viewpoints on him and his militia organisation, they changed as well. Yeah. It's said that he employs guerrilla tactics against ISIS and has appeared in videos decapitating his victims, even one where he sliced bits off a member of ISIS who had been strung up and burned, saying to the camera, this will be your fate, we will cut you like shawarma. As well as this, he coined the catchphrase Illa Talin, which translate to grind them to dust. So he's even got his own catchphrase. I mean, he's becoming more and more, (laughs) the more that I looked into this guy, the more and more he's becoming this kind of superhero kind of character, albeit slightly vigilante-ish. When I look further back, the first mention of him appeared in June 2014. Abu Azrael was uh, mentioned as a field commander battling Islamic State. And the the article said that in late June, as the armed wing of the newly created movement of the Islamic Iraq, Katib al-Imam Ali burst into the scene with uniformed and well-armed members. It has been quite active in Amarilli, Tuz and Diyala, fighting alongside other Iraqi Shiite militias, all of them Iranian proxies. In Salah al-Din province, fighters from the group posted videos with severed heads of their slain enemies, and in late December the group even set about training Christians from a subgroup to fight against ISIS also. Uh, The group also appears to have strong links with the Iraqi government. In August and September it published pictures of Ziadi riding an Iraqi army helicopter, and one of the militia's field commanders, Abu Azrael, manning a different helicopter's machine gun. And the article itself then concluded with a slightly less positive assessment. The organisation and its ilk present long-term threats. Uh, This is, I hasten to add, this is an American publication, by the way. Completely unbiased then. Uh, Well, you know, absolutely. But uh, it says that the the organisation and its ilk present long-term threats to regional stability and US interests. Even as Washington focuses on fighting ISIS, it would do well to prepare now for the day when radical Iran-linked Shiite militias turn more actively against America's interests and allies. So they kind of marked him on the card as, you know, Mm. uh, him and his organization, the uh, uh, movement of the Islamic Iraq, as uh, a possible threat in future, because obviously they were fighting against the Americans only nine years previously yeah the bbc have reported on him as well in on the 17th of march 2015 and this is all before the paris attacks uh so he's already kind of there they released an article entitled the archangel of death fighting islamic state and it says he's bald with a prodigious beard and often pictured with a smile on his face even when carrying his favorite weapons A Facebook page devoted to his feats has more than 300,000 likes, with the vast majority of his fans inside Iraq itself. And he's been giving the terrifying moniker Abu Azrael, father of the Archangel of Death. Of course, nothing is quite so simple when it comes to the fight against IS, and basic facts about the Abu Azrael story are difficult to verify. That piece, which described the narrative as part of Iran's propaganda machine, quoted Philip Smith, an expert on Shia militias at the University of Maryland. Uh, He said the Iranian-backed Katab Imam Ali militia group, which Abu Azrael is or was a member of, was formed in the summer of 2014 and immediately started promoting their star soldier using sophisticated strategy. Smith said, I've been watching Shia militias on Facebook and social media for years and this fits the model of an organised campaign. He had his own Facebook profiles and pages, the earliest in late 2014. They had built up the character quite well, and initial photo releases were shown of him doing heroic or interesting things. The militia has also posted much darker social media content, including severing the heads of what they believe are IS fighters. Now, um, throughout all of those articles, Abu Azrael is described as being a Shia fighter and not a Christian that the that the facebook post yeah. after the paris attack mentions so 
that seems to be a little bit i mean if you're a shia militia you're generally counted among well the muslim tradition no islam yeah so that's a discrepancy so that is a discrepancy from the facebook post that comes much later on in the year after these articles there's an article from a website called vocative v-o-c-a-t-i-v on uh the 24th of April 2015, and it sheds a little bit more light onto his background. It said, In parts of Iraq, Abu Azrael now seems ubiquitous. His face is on T-shirts, which also feature his catchphrase, Il Italian. There are music videos and cartoons celebrating him, and regular television interviews with news anchors and smiling politicians. Despite his having told Vocative that he welcomed all sects and represented all Iraqis, He and his fighters have shown little regard for Sunnis who'd abandoned their homes in territory previously held by ISIS. And um, there's like a 12-minute news report from the TV channel France 24 uh, in which a reporter does go out on patrol with Abu Azrael and his militia team. And uh, it's quite eye-opening in the fact that Wherever he goes, he's mobbed in Iraq by groups of people wanting selfies with him. And everywhere he goes, he's got a couple of smartphones always shooting videos and taking pictures of where he is and what he's doing. He he claims it's a kind of counter-propaganda to what ISIS generally put out. But um, mm. it seems very... It's almost westernised. It, it's, it's this weird kind of contradiction almost, like it's he's using social media in the way that any kind of celebrity would and it it seems kind of counterintuitive to do that bearing in mind yeah bearing in mind also he's broadcasting his location effectively to the enemy and the enemy know Mm. exactly what he looks like but yeah everything is very kind of stage managed there was a point during the report where they went and uh, fought alongside the Iraqi army against some ISIS targets. And there was a lot of... uh, The soldiers all abandoned their posts to come and swarm around him and take pictures with him and and such. And then there was a part of the report where it showed him firing weapons into the distance and then getting into a 4x4 and not retreating, but leaving the area, whether or not any of the shooting that he did resulted in any kills i have no idea but yeah it seems very propagandist is what he's doing but they mentioned there as well that his group have shown little regard for sunni people in iraq there was a part in the report where in one part of i think tikrit in northern iraq isis had been driven out by the shiite militia and there was one little old lady who'd come back to the area and uh, they were quite harsh with her questioning whether she'd been in contact with any ISIS agents or anything in the area and they they really were interrogating her quite harshly for the fact that she was you know a 70 or 80 year old woman so there's a kind of there's always been a bit of a uh, an antagonism between Shiite and Sunni anyway, as far as I know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back centuries, yeah. Yeah, there, there's still that kind of... He's he's saying that he represents all sects and all ways of life, but there is that antagonism still f- towards Sunnis as well as, obviously, ISIS or IS or whatever you want to call them. But as Abu Azrael gained prominence in the West after the attacks in Paris... The article attributed his folkloric fame in part to the symbolic reprieve he represented to Iraqi citizens terrorised by ISIS. Abu Azrael's popularity is largely considered a measure of how eagerly people in Baghdad have pinned their hopes on a defence against ISIS. Um, So again, even in, you know, as much as he was a symbol after the Paris attacks of kind of hope, he uh, has been a symbol of that in Iraq for the last two years. His last major appearance before the Paris attacks occurred on the 20th of October 2015 in an associated press piece entitled Iraq Says Forces Recapture Refinery Town from IS Militants. 
At some point between that report and the attacks in Paris, the already outsized legend surrounding Abu Azrael grew to encompass his purported Christianity, which didn't appear in any previous reports, as I said earlier on. And uh, mm. an apparently baseless body count of around 1,500. As I say, in, in, in many of the videos that I've seen, yeah, he's posing with severed heads, but there aren't that many. And the uh, the firing that is that has been captured on video, you never see any actual casualties from that. Just simply get into their four by fours and drive off into the distance. A source for those claims wasn't immediately apparent, and while it appeared that Abu Azrael was legitimately fighting ISIS on the front lines, most of what was attributed to him in November 2015 didn't check out even against much earlier and presumably exaggerated reports. Since 2015, he's been reportedly cited at Fallujah and also the battle for Mosul uh, alongside Iraqi forces against ISIS, uh, the latter of which, the battle for Mosul, is still going on. So Mm. as far as I know, he's still in that area, but uh, nothing has been reported on him since late 2016. I believe there was an article in, well, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. It's from the Mail Online. Right. <laughs> they they reported they reported him being in Fallujah and the date on that is the 8th of June 2016. And uh, according to Abu Azrael's Wikipedia page, he was <laughs> uh he was reported as being spotted on the battlefield in the Battle of Mosul, which uh, as I said, as of well, we're recording this in April of 2017. At this point, there is still a battle going on in the northwestern districts of Mosul. So presumably he is still there and is still active. But the man himself, it seems that the Christian status that that original Facebook post put out is possibly not correct. Bearing in mind that every report before November of 2015 said he's working with a Shiite militia. Or an Iranian-backed Shiite militia at that. The body count, we I don't think there's any actual... There, there's no physical evidence to support 1,500 people between uh, the beginning of November 2014 and the, uh, the end of November 2016. And even his background, we don't really know very much about him at all. He may be a father of five, we don't know. He may have been a PE teacher or he may have been a university lecturer. He may have been a Taekwondo champion. There, there's, there's no f- solid evidence backing up any of those claims. And I think, more than anything, he's just a propaganda picture. He's, he's like a character, almost. Because most figures used in propaganda campaigns have a kind of exaggerated, fictional, superhero-like backstory to raise them above the ordinary man or woman in an attempt to drive recruitment to the cause and uh, to give a sense of positivity to the citizens of, a, of an oppressed nation, or in this case, the world, against ISIS. There are certain other propagandist images of, of certain rebel fighters, one in particular, Che Guevara, I guess. You know, mm. he was raised up to be this icon. And still, to this day, you get T-shirts with his image emblazoned on it, posters... But perhaps it's not such a bad thing that we don't know anything about him. Maybe having this kind of fictional Iraqi superhero going around cutting the heads and legs off ISIS agents is not such a bad thing to have in your mind. I don't know. It's open to interpretation. He is clearly a real man. He is clearly fighting ISIS. But a lot about his background has been kind of made up to represent this kind of superman. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it was very popular within Second World War, particularly mm. in the Nazi ranks and in, in the Soviet side, where they would have sort of a, a poster boy mm. for the the fight, particularly with um, Stalingrad. There yeah. was the the characters involved in that, which obviously the actual um, the film with Jude Law depicts one one of the guys who was passed away with that against somebody who was a kind of a legendary hero figure from the Nazi side as well mm. as the sharpshooters against each other. That was uh, Enemy at the Gate, wasn't it? Enemy at the Gate, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And admittedly, Che Guevara is, is, the, is the ultimate poster boy for a cause mm. who, who did you know, disappear regularly to go and actually do 
a lot of the the things which built up his reputation, which were reported afterwards. And in the day of modern so- social media, who knows how that would have been handled had he been doing the same kind of things. Absolutely. And uh, the discrepancies that you've picked up upon are, are obviously there to be seen if anybody wanted to actually investigate like you have. But the, the, the desire by people to have these figures of hope, even if they are just a, a figurehead rather than actual sort of a, a true um, Rambo-esque force for, for reckoning. Yeah. It is, you know, you can understand that desire being out there and, and people reimagining them to support the Western desire to not have a Muslim been the freedom fighter um, poster boy, but to have it that they're actually a Christian mm. is is it's understandable how that could be somebody's motive for bringing that in and making them a, a even more figure after the attacks on the West. But it, this, like you say, it creates a complete discrepancy if the hero is meant to be out there catching all these ISIS members and, and bringing this retribution to them and being feared by them. But he's then actually on social media for them to be able to know that he's nowhere near them. So, and, mm. and he's, he's, movements are documented it, it doesn't quite tally up that the two things are both true mm. so the the fear factor that maybe they were trying to create is less of a fear factor and more like you say a propaganda for one side rather than a propaganda against the other side yeah we know that isis do actually involve themselves in social media a lot more than you would expect it to but still you can't imagine that they're going to be so lax in their social media that they're not going to notice that he's been purported to be at the other end of Iraq and therefore they've got nothing to fear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm looking through this um, Battle of Mosul Wikipedia page and it's got a list of commanders and leaders and it's got a mention of all the ISIS leaders, which I don't know whether people really think about them as a proper organisation, but they've got a minister of media. They've got an oil minister. They've got, they've got a war they, council they, leader, you know. It's much they more. Are quite, they are quite structured, I think, mm. and um, and and taking on what could be seen as being quite modern or corporate or governmental, because um, they want to portray themselves as being the new caliphate in the in the area, and that they are the the legitimate government as such. So mm. they do aspire to have that that sort of respectability as far as actually uh, been an organization and and um i mean you saw it with the taliban as well they you know they had um people who are in these these positions but because they're portrayed by the western media has been basically a force of of terrorists and a, a rabble as a lot of the time as well it doesn't actually tally up that you've actually got the structures of chains of command and, and ministerial positions and things and how much they are titled and how much they are actually people occupying those roles and doing something with them, you don't know because you hear from the reports that do leak out from within ISIS territory that it's pretty much a totalitarian thing in some senses, but soldiers are going around wreaking terror. So how much can that be actually backing up by any official them? You don't know. But as you say, the Sunnis and the Shiites, their feelings towards each other as such that they're more likely to be perpetrating evil against each other and not then trying to rule everybody. They're just wanting to actually be, um, the ISIS are wanting to just be the ruler of their own sect sort of thing and drive everybody else out or kill them. So that doesn't speak well of them actually being a, a cohesive force, really, uh, no. considering that they're facing attack from a number of fronts. But of course, we do have more information. There is more information in the West about ISIS than you would expect it to be because of previous involvement with the group. Well, that yeah. Is conception in actually helping it to actually be formed and, and arming it. So exactly, it's much the same with uh, with a lot of international terrorist organisations, or that then get branded terrorist organisations. A lot of the funding has come from Britain and the US. The Taliban were another one, as were yeah. the IRA. Yeah, and Al Qaeda as well. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, we know Syria is a situation where there's so many conflicts in different groups against each other. It yeah. becomes a, a, spider, a spider's web of a tangled knot. But as far as there being a, a, a singular 
figure of, of hope or retribution mm. in, in genuineness um, rather than it just being a propaganda figure. It seems that all the evidence that you've discovered there counters all the rhetoric and uh, wishful thinking that's uh, purported on Facebook. Yeah, I think um, worldwide conflict or even localised conflict, they're all, there's almost a will to find someone who is a leader or a hero and it it inspires confidence within the local population it it gives it gives hope to people and i think there's always going to be a someone raised up to be that kind of figure of hope uh whether or not it's entirely true we will never know i don't think but uh Clearly, he's not doing it on his own. He's got a whole paramilitary organisation around him as well as the Iraqi army. It's just interesting that this is the most modern version of this that I've ever found outside of, say, Che Guevara. I can't think of many more in more modern history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there were, there were a couple during the Yugoslavian wars and things which were, were more localised because the, the media didn't quite have the same stretch that they do now with social media and, and things but you can you know you can understand that this is the, the most problematic area of, of the world really for conflict yeah. so the, the fact that there are these figures of of hope or retribution coming up has been a figurehead and to some extent a fantasy figure you can understand where why it would come from and and it's almost inevitable that it would happen mm. and all the legend that's attached to him you wonder how that's going to pan out post-conflict, whether that's going to be sort of exposed and people are going to forget it or whether it's going to become a, a myth that people are going to still purport in 50 years' time that there was this figure and it's all, almost going to become a King Arthur type mm. thing. Because the, the other thing that all the reports made, even the ones after the Paris terror attacks, even the ones in 2016, they still quote this uh, 1,500 kills number. And it seems that even though he's been going for yet another year, he hasn't killed any extra. It's just that it's almost like a magic number that they've kind of plucked out of nowhere and they're sticking with. It's just interesting to kind of see details like that stick. And and clearly, if he was still racking up the uh, the body count, that, that number would have changed, surely. They'd have made a point of uh, giving his latest kill count. But um, it just seems to be a bit of a construct but the construct itself is needed so um it's it's difficult to say i think it's it's probably a force for good but uh at the same time i just thought it was an interesting case study seeing as there hasn't been one of these kind of propaganda figures in the age of social media absolutely yeah it was just interesting to study and have a look at how a character like this is constructed yeah i mean you know you can imagine that there's going to be there's probably some local, you know, localized merchandising going on, and it wouldn't surprise you if in the future there was a film or mm. cartoon or some action figures, all sorts of things. Assuming that side uh, wins, it'll probably be a situation where the the victors write post-truth narrative, and um, mm. they're able to to make out it was more than it was even then, despite the facts that you've discovered. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see whether the mythology surrounding Abu Azrael intensifies or whether it kind of dissipates into nothing after the uh well if the conflicts are ever resolved and that's yeah. a, that's a whole other bucket of uh worms but yeah interesting stuff absolutely it was yeah so i believe this is the part of the show where we delve into some quick shits yep what do you have for us first off i've dug up some words for things that you feel that you really should have words for but you didn't know those words existed okay there's several of them i've managed to, to dig up along this theme the first one I'll, I'll mention is tartle it's an old scottish word for forgetting the name of the person you're just about to introduce to somebody <laughs> which you know obviously we've all done that at various points your, your mind goes blank and if it was a more common phrase. You'd be able to actually remark, uh, sorry, I've just tattled. And people would understand what... Because what... everybody experiences it, but nobody knows how to describe it in a short way without making the situation worse. Yeah. So, you know, trying to get them to introduce themselves to each other is usually the best tactic, but that's not always um, possible. 
No, that's true. I've been in many a many an awkward moment like that in the past. Even people that I've known for many, many years, all of a sudden their name evaporates from my head and you feel like such an idiot. Yeah. And if there was if there was a yeah. well recognized word for that rather than being like, I'm sorry, I've just forgotten your name it would be slightly easier to get around, I suppose. So if... Yes, it would be, yes. Um, the second one I've got is scurry funge. And this is the, the hurried tidying up of your home when you see somebody <laughs> um, approaching your door, which, you know, again, I think a number of people have, have done when you suddenly realise you've got vis- unexpected visitors and you need to actually um, put away the, the dirty crockery that was uh, that's on your table or, or whatever. You suddenly want to and open cupboards and chuck everything in that's been <laughs> lying around that you don't want to see, sticking magazines underneath the sofa cushions. So, you know, again, it's a, it's something that a number of us uh, have done a number of times in the past in our lives, mm. but surprisingly, there is a word for it. And that's scurry funge. Uh, scurry funge, yeah. <laughs> the, the one that actually led me to investigating this is one that I've actually been using for about 20 years now since I discovered it, which is Briglow. Okay. And Briglow is the phenomenon of when you get that sinking sensation that the person you're talking about is stood directly behind you. <laughs> yep. Which, you know, again, you know, I've been able to actually uh, recognise that that's actually got a name since it does happen. Um, it's, it's rather strange to be able to name it. <laughs> the uh, Another one is, is Ramist, which is the, the irritability um, you have from having been woken up too early, <laughs> which is you know rather rather straightforward to be honest. Yes, um, but uh, it is something that plenty of people feel because having startled awake or not having enough sleep or, or sometimes couldn't leave you in the best frame of mind to be interacting with whoever it is that's woken you up. Yeah, so, I'm terrible if I get woken up. Oh, I hate it. I'm not a morning person to begin with, but if I'm uh, no. if I'm woken up, that's uh, that's it. You're in my bad books for the rest of the day, at least. Oh yeah, I just I'm not a morning person. I get incredibly grumpy if I'm woken up unexpectedly. So yeah. <laughs> the next one is is grook, not crook, but grook. Okay. Yeah, and and this one is is something um, less commonly experienced, I think, but some people have have experienced it. It's a word for silently watching people eat in the hope that they'll ask you to join them. Obviously, you've had a dog before, so you know you know that you know dogs do this quite often. <laughs> yes, and I'm sure it includes people who, who um, are sat having drinks as well, and you, you, you sat on your own. You might feel the uh, the desire to be invited to be part of the group. Yeah, I guess so. I must have witnessed that at some point working in pubs. Some yes. lonely person sitting at the end of the bar, nursing a pint, hoping for someone yeah. to spark up a conversation with them. I'm absolutely sure I've seen that. <laughs> And it, and it usually had to be you because you were behind the bar. Yes, unfortunately so. The amount of nonsense conversations I've had to have with people over the over the years has been, you know, it's off the chart. Yeah, I mean, it's working in a pub, you're bound to encounter that more often. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, there are sometimes in, in workplace canteens and, and things like that where there's yeah. a social, social dining that's kind of enforced mm-hmm. and school cafeterias, I suppose. Leading on from that one mm. is Scum Leary, which is, uh, again, Old Scots. Mm. And it's the um, it's the term to refer to a friend who only ever turns up at mealtimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not sure why, you know, why the Scots feel particularly it's worth commenting upon, um, you know, people tearing up and freeloading. But um, obviously uh, it's, it's worth them inventing a word for. Clearly, so, there you go. That 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 exists. And finally, I've got the word snudge, which means to stride around pretending like you're busy. <laughs> which often, you know, you you know that in the workplace, often with management, they will uh, they will do that kind of thing. Oh yes. And particularly if they're carrying a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and you'll get the oh I'll I'll just be with you in a minute. I've just got to do this, and they walk off, and you never see them again. <laughs> So, yeah, there's a word now attached to that. And if the management don't know that word, but the rest of the workforce do, then obviously there's the opportunity to make a lot of merit out of it. I like by, it. Yeah, uh, pointing out when, when management are a snudge. Snudge. Right, I like it. I used to snudge quite a lot when I worked in retail. 
yes. wandering around looking like I was doing something for a customer when actually all I was doing is trying not to do any work at all. Yeah, I think a lot of people in retail get to a certain point in the day when <laughs> and their shifts when that's the only option that they have to actually survive <laughs> through to the end of the shift. Oh. So yes, that was my that was my somewhat humorous take on um, words that we didn't know exist, but we certainly need them to. Yes, yeah, definitely. I'm going to take away a couple of those and use them in almost everyday life, especially Snudge. <laughs> yes, and Bridler. <laughs> yeah, yes, brilliant. So what about yourself? Mine's relatively similar. Mine are everyday phrases that actually have a basis in the nautical world. So, you know, you've got your kind of three sheets to the wind and groggy to describe various levels of drunkenness or hungover. You've got stuff like, I guess, a shot across the bows is fairly obvious where that comes from. But there are other ones that I didn't realise came from a nautical background, such as chock-a-block. Oh, right. I would have assumed that was aviation. Yeah, yeah, I'd have thought that too. Oh, but chock-a-block actually comes from nautical worlds. And it the first reference to it comes from around 1400 AD, where a block is a reference to a block and tackle, so a pulley mechanism on a ship. So oh, right. to hoist the sails, you would use the, uh, the block and tackle to hoist the sails. And uh, chock-a-block comes as the result of wedging the block with a chock <laughs> so a chock is like a wedge and you right. would jam yeah. that into one of the eyelets that the rope was going through to stop the sail from either setting or unfurling so it's a way of keeping a sail at a certain length which ah. i thought was quite interesting but it it, yeah, it yeah. means a totally different thing because obviously chock a block generally means crammed so tightly Although I suppose it means the same thing. It's crammed so tightly to prevent movement, isn't it, I suppose? Chock-a-block is just crammed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of the usage maybe has slightly changed, but it means the same, mm. same thing, essentially. But weird yeah. that it was for a very specific thing, and it's to stop sail movement. Another one is uh, by and large. Oh, right. Well, that's a yeah, very common phrase, isn't it? Yeah. So by and large in general conversation means kind of on the whole, all things considered, generally speaking, by and hmm. large, this happens. By and large, actually, large is the easier one to explain because large is when um, there's a heavyish wind blowing from a compass point behind the ship, so it's forcing the ship along. The, the wind is large when it's behind you. Oh, right. And by is where you have to maneuver the sails of a boat so that you go by the wind so if you're not moving in the exact direction that the uh, the wind is forcing you along from behind you can catch it from another point which will also give you forward movement so when you're by and large it means that you've set the sails to catch the most of the wind to propel you forward fastest and that is to set the sail by and large so actually nothing to do with the general meaning of what by and large now means. Right. But I suppose in a yeah. way you can link it because by and large meaning general, it's trying to catch the most wind that you possibly can. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of, it, it, it works, but it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I understand what, yeah, yeah, because you, yeah, you're right. It's very difficult to explain how to, <laughs> how to, how to link the two, but yeah. it's, uh, it does actually trans transfer. It's got the, the same root. You yeah. can see how they're linked to each other. But the actual, the more modern yeah. version of the uh, of the phrase is so totally different. <laughs> hand over fist finds yeah. its origin in nautical terms. Hand over fist generally means quickly, doesn't it? Right, yeah, yeah. When you take something hand over fist, you're kind of grabbing at it, taking big handfuls of whatever it is. And this is actually to do with pulling a rope essentially hauling a rope oh of course yeah the, yeah hand over hand was the original version of the phrase but actually hand over fist makes much more sense if you do the if you pull an, imag an imaginary rope now you know you're yeah. moving one hand over the fist that preceded it yes to haul the rope yeah. i hope i hope 
everyone listening to this is now pulling an imaginary <laughs> rope. I, that's all I wanted to do with that one, really. Yeah, just make people do that action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other one that really kind of stood out as well as one that I had no idea about being a nautical phrase is touch and go. Oh, right. Meaning it's a bit kind of delicate or the the chances of someone living is touch and go. It's like it's on a knife yeah. edge, basically, you know. So touch and go comes from nautical meaning as a, a ship or a stagecoach even giving a glancing blow to the seabed or to the wheels of other coaches. Right. So ships hitting the seabed uh, before continuing their journey on. To collide with something might mean disaster, but a mere touch meant a narrow escape. A glancing blow. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, really, because it's, it's it, again, it's the same meaning, but it's been appropriated in everyday speech. There's a whole host of them, and like, like I say, there's there's a lot more kind of obvious ones like pushing the boat out or the cut of your jib. Yes. But there's some interesting ones, like, for example, slush fund is another one that's nautical. Oh, right. So slush fund meaning money put aside for a rainy day, I suppose. But also it's more of a political mm. thing, really, a slush fund, isn't it? I guess as well you could say that it's a bribery thing in, in yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah. Slush was mentioned in the rural economy of Yorkshire in 1641 when meat was being um, cooked on board a ship. All the all the fat from the meat was being stored in barrels and then would actually be sold when they reached port. We don't get don't let out go to waste up here in Yorkshire. Ah, I forget. Yeah, that's exactly where you are, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So it's all about yeah saving stuff putting it aside to be sold on later on so a slightly different use of slush fund but yeah weird that that one also has a nautical theme because you'd think that would come from banking of some sort yeah you would so yeah it's just you know because of the money context you would you know it wasn't even a surplus of money that it was originally from it was to do with um with animal fat so yeah. which i suppose with a new five pound note is more or less you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's a whole host of those that are quite interesting to have a look through. Just interesting that there are certain ones that I had absolutely no idea at all came from uh, came from the sea. Yeah, there is just off the top of my head, and I, mm. I can't remember the exact details, but the abbreviation OMG. Right. And for it to mean, oh my God, the first recorded use of that was during the First World War oh. by a British admiral. Yeah. In a, in a letter that he wrote to the then Lord of the Admiralty, that was Winston Churchill. Right. Um, and that's the first documented use. And, and, you know, for some reason, he didn't understand how abbreviations worked. And he, he, he wrote OMG and then in brackets put, oh, my God. So, <laughs> <laughs> weird. But, um, Just I in case you was the first one using, Well, he was the first one using it. So I suppose he had to explain it to somebody. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was the first um, use of it. I believe it was in response to some news that he was getting a peerage or of some description or getting knighthood or something like that. I can't remember his his name, but it was a, a, an admiral of the British Navy in the latter stages of the First World War, and an admiral of the British Navy during the early part of the 20th century is probably about as far away as you can get from the. Um, California girl usage of um, it girls. oh my god really yeah. the it girls yeah strange how these things origin and then they end up in in use by other people that is odd isn't it yeah mm. and um good that we came up with those I think because it kind of ties into the whole name of the show as well yes absolutely shipped high in transit which is uh, obviously uh, it's not quite quite so much true that is it not that, true though yeah. The, <laughs> in, in the same way that actually posh was supposed to be um port out starboard home was uh yes. was uh, supposed to be an acronym but apparently that's a complete bunkum as well so on to your main story that you're bringing us today the disappearance of ashley yes who is or what is ashley well, this is not the mysterious abduction of a girl or even indeed a boy mm. uh, called Ashley, but it's the reports that there are on uh, numerous sites on the internet 
of the disappearance of a Kansas town and its entire populace called Ashley in 1952. Wow, that's recent. Yeah, so the story goes that um, in the eight days leading up to the disappearance of the town and um, its uh, 679 residents, there was a bizarre series of unexplained events that were reported by the residents of Ashley to the law enforcement agencies of the surrounding area. Mm. As far as the report goes, at 7.30 on the evening of the 8th of August in 1952, there was a resident from Ashley by the name of Gabriel Jonathan. He reported a strange sight in the sky above the town of Ashley. The town apparently was so small that it didn't actually have its own law enforcement agency there was no police or, or anything actually stationed in the town so he'd had to make a call through to the police station of the neighboring town which is called Hayes now Mr Jonathan he reported that there appeared in the sky a, a small black opening and within the next 15 minutes or so apparently the, the Hayes police station became overwhelmed with dozens of phone calls all reporting the same spectacle. The anomaly was never actually reported by anybody outside the town of, of Ashley, but due to the volume of co- distressed calls coming from the actual town, it was decided to actually send a, a, a policeman, a state trooper, as it turns out, to Ashley to investigate by the following morning. Hmm. So a little bit before 8am in the morning, on the 9th of August, Hayes police officer Alan Mays radioed the Hayes police station and he reported that despite the fact that he'd followed the one-way road leading to Ashley, he'd become lost. Right. And according to what he said, was the road continued along a normal path, but somehow ended up back at Hayes. Now, the officer went on to add that the road had never curved or changed in, in direction or bent or anything, yet still he'd ended up you know, back where he started. So at quarter past nine on, on that morning, seven out of the town's ten police cars were sent to investigate. And all of the members of the team came to the same conclusion. The only road which led to Ashley had stopped leading to Ashley. <laughs> and instead, uh, led, led back to his. Now, phone calls continued to, to pour in during that, that time and for the rest of the day uh, into the Hayes uh, police station. And they all reported that this black opening in the sky had continued to grow in size. And all the callers were advised by the police to remain indoors and not travel outside unless absolutely necessary. And the usual kind of advice that the law enforcement gives to worried populaces. Mm. And then at 17 minutes past eight in the evening, one of the residents, Mrs. Elaine Cantor, reported that her neighbours, Mr. and Mrs. Wilton, and their two children, Geoffrey and Brooke, had gone missing. Mm. Now, according to her phone call, They'd attempted to leave the town in their family car earlier in the evening and they'd never returned and the law enforcement officials from Hayes never reported a car or the individuals coming up the one-way road. Right. Then on the 10th of August, the next day, a little after half past seven in the morning, the phone calls from Ashley into the police station in Hayes reported that the town was now in total darkness. The sun had never risen at the expected time. And at 15 minutes past 10 in the morning, at the request of the Hayes Law Enforcement, a helicopter from Topeka, Kansas, um, flew over the region where Ashley, Kansas, stood. Except the town was never observed from the air. (laughs) That's bizarre. Yeah. Now, um, a little after noon on August 11th, Mrs. Phoebe Danielowski called in to the Hayes Police Station. She reported that her daughter Erica had begun having conversations with her father who had died in an accident three years prior. Okay. To add to her concern, she reported that Erica was attempting to go outside into the dark to join them. Over the course of the next 12 hours, a reported 329 phone calls were placed to the Hayes Police Station, all describing similar incidents with the children of the town. The following morning, which was August the 12th, the situation became dire. In the middle of the night, all 217 children in the town of Ashley had disappeared. A reported 
421 phone calls were placed to the Hayes Police Department. Unable to be of any useful assistance, obviously, because they were a town away, the Hayes Law Enforcement instructed all callers to remain inside and to avoid any and all attempts at finding their missing children. The next day, at 5 in the evening, the 13th, an elderly man from Ashley, who was called Scott Lunds, reported a growing distant fire to the south of Ashley. According to his uh, description, the fire seemed to turn the distant black sky into a bright red and orange that seemed to extend high into the sky. Throughout the rest of the day, phone calls continued, stating the fire, in addition to moving north, was now coming out of the sky. Uh, no fire was witnessed by the neighbouring communities, though, nor by the law enforcement officials. The reports continued until nine minutes past 12 in the morning on August the 14th. The last phone call was placed by Mr. Benjamin Endicott. He reported that the fire in the sky had grown so intense that it had begun to appear like it was daytime in the town. And the phone call ended abruptly. At 3.28am on August the 17th, a magnitude 7.9 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The earthquake itself was felt throughout the state and most of the Midwest. The epicenter, well, that was determined to be directly under the town of Ashley in Kansas. Blimey. When the law enforcement arrived to see what the outskirts of Ashley looked like, they found just a smouldering burning fissure in the earth, and that measured 1,000 yards in length and 500 yards in width. Um, the depth of the fissure was unmeasurable at that point, and after 12 days, the statewide and local search for the missing 679 residents of Ashley, Kansas, was called off by the Kansas state government. All 679 residents were assumed to be dead. And then on August the 30th, at 2.27am, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The epicentre, again, was situated directly under where Ashley used to be. The law enforcement investigation reported that the fissure in the earth had closed. Wow. That's... The earth seemed to have swallowed the entire town and its several hundred residents, which is unnerving enough without all the additional events preceding the reports. It sounds like a film. <laughs> it does. However, looking into records, there's only one earthquake recorded to have happened in Kansas in 1952, and that occurred in April rather than August. Okay. An earthquake of the magnitude of 7.5 or 7.9 hitting Kansas would have been local, if not national, news. Mm. And a pair of such strong earthquakes occurring within two weeks of each other at the same site would have made even more headlines. Yet, no such geological occurrences are recorded to have occurred. Okay. Now, Maybe some out there who subscribe to um, conspiracies about um, governments trying to cover over these things, and you know Roswell as an example, and that could be an explanation. But unfortunately, that doesn't actually account for one unavoidable fact: that looking into records and maps predating 1952, there's no proof of the town of Ashley ever existing. Oh, uh. so. What happened there then? Was it just a story or has there been some massive conspiracy going on to actually conceal the fact that this town disappeared? And what would be the reason for that? That is bizarre because it's happening in the mid-50s, so not too long after Roswell, the Roswell incident, Mm. and also around about the time of nuclear testing. Yeah. But I'm sure it wouldn't be nuclear testing in the middle of... America. Well, they did. They did do some nuclear testing, didn't they? Mm. But it was out in the middle of the desert rather yeah. than in the middle of Kansas. Yeah. And of course, a, a nuclear blast would create the spectacle of there being a, a fire rising into the sky and such like. Yeah. But it wouldn't happen over about eight days. No, no. And it also doesn't doesn't explain the large black hole in the sky as well. No, or the fact that the police couldn't actually drive to the town Mm. and ended up back where they started. 
So was there, <laughs> this is warping my brain slightly. Was there ever a town called Ashley then? Or was it just... No, the, 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 town, the town of Hayes can mm. be found on the map to this date. Yeah. But there, there is currently you know, no, no map reference to Ashley in Kansas. And going back into records pre-1952, mm. um, there was no record of the town existing. And it seems the first mentions of the town seem to have come about within the last 10 years on the internet. How strange. So yeah. it, it could well be some kind of uh, sci-fi horror writer making up this story. It could it could almost be, yeah, that that's um, that's where it's come from. Um, it sounds I mean, like original... a kind of Stephen King-ish or a Philip K. Dick style. <laughs> well, like you say, it sounds it sounds like a, an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Or, or such that somebody has elaborated into a screenplay which will star the rock um, <laughs> probably he'll beat the but, fire um, and win this is it yeah i mean the the original thing that led me onto this story was reading about a road in california on which over a series of a year or two there'd been numerous disappearances of cars that had just that had traveled down there at night and uh had, had just seemingly gone into the ether right um, they'd never reached the destination at the other end and that was investigated and explained away that the um, the disappearances were were linked to the fact that the road had an undulation in it so you couldn't always see far ahead on it mm. and there was a, a tight curve which was unexpected on this road right. and cars had gone off this ravine <laughs> and because they'd gone off the ravine anybody traveling along the road looking for where the, the people might be couldn't see them because they'd end up at the, the bottom of a, a several hundred feet drop wow I, I investigated that one and found out that that one was again a, a myth <laughs> about a place that didn't exist which led me on to the story of ashley and the disappearance which does raise the questions of, of the town never existing and why the earthquakes of such magnitude yeah. weren't ever recorded. But with the modern phenomenon we've got of sinkholes mm. happening at various places around the United States, um, which seems to be happening more often now than previous, who's to say that this won't happen in the future, that there'll be a town that'll disappear down a hole? True, true. I mean, um, I know that Pennsylvania has got a series of tunnels underneath it where I think there are tyre fires that have been going on for years underneath parts of Pennsylvania. And, yeah, they're quite unstable, and certain towns or villages have had to have been evacuated because of the instability of the earth. And even in this country, there's been a spate of sinkholes opening up. Not massive ones, mm. but... No, no. You know, the motorways around here have had to have been reconstructed a couple of times in the last few years people's cars have been sucked down a hole that has suddenly opened up underneath people's driveways or whatever so i suppose it's not completely unfeasible that this happened no especially especially not with fracking been on the horizon for for a number of places around the yeah around that's, this country now. Uh, that's true but i know florida is uh i think an epicenter for a lot of um sinkholes that have come about and swallowed up houses mm. with people in them which has been actually documented properly that this has happened. But whole towns, uh, that's yet to happen. Mm. But who knows for the future? Yeah. Well, there's Keep actually there's large areas of Siberia that are opening up in gigantic sinkholes because methane underneath the crust of the Earth has been frozen in the permafrost up there. And because global warming is actually happening, yes, those bubbles are becoming unstable. And there are whole regions of mongolia and siberia where huge mile wide holes have opened up and there's even some footage of people kind of standing on one and the whole ground kind of undulates like a waterbed wow it's really kind of spooky to watch but um but i'm sure that's not happening in the u.s because it's not frozen ground where they are so yeah it's very strange I, 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 it would be interesting to see if there were any news reports in and around the area of Hayes that would back this up. 
No, well, apparently the, the you know the research reveals that the, there was no record of these occurrences happening, mm. and local media and and record keeping of of maps, tax records, etc., show no records of there ever being a, a town called Ashley. So if it's a cover up, then it's quite a serious one, and you've got to imagine what would be the reason for it. Mm. Yeah, reducing mass panic. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, yeah. but it sounds more like that it's probably some short story writer <laughs> to me. It's it's quite possibly uh, that that's where where it's come from. Yeah, mm. but like we say, we're here to try and delve out the the true and the uh, mysterious mm. and the questionable, and uh, that's definitely fits into the uh, the questionable category. Yeah, it's compelling. I'd like to see the story, uh, the uh, the film version of it. Actually, that would be quite interesting. Perhaps we should work yeah, on a screen. Yeah, in 2018 with The Rock. Yes. Well, good stuff. A good couple of stories there. I'm quite. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm going to go and have a have a read up on this East East Ashley thing for sure. But uh, but yeah. So thank you very much for coming on the show again. No problem. My pleasure. And as we say, uh, you are now part of the furniture now on this show. So uh, hopefully. We will uh, record another one before the end of the year. Yes, we will endeavour to so so that we can keep all the fans happy. Yes, indeed. But uh, but yeah, thanks for bringing that story in. It's a real kind of head scratcher that one. I, I I enjoyed that. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely, yes, my pleasure too. So um, if you've got any unexplained stories or possibly things that are kind of urban legend or myths that you've read on the internet or slightly unbelievable things that you've found perhaps you should get in contact with us on uh, facebook twitter or you could email abhpod at gmail.com as well but just put in ship tie and transit as the uh, as the category line there we'd love to hear from you so until next time i have been tom with the story of abu azrael and with the disappearance of ashley i've been Stephen. goodbye take care